0: Red light won't come on hello oh it is on is it yeah it is all right great yeah um, all right let's go ahead and get started it is 9:15 break it up break it up come on and find your seat uh, we'll go ahead and uh, get started here. Um, so before we uh, we pray and get going, uh, just a couple of reminders. Uh, one is that next week is when we start the discipling book, the blue book. Um, so uh, there are still a stack of them. If you haven't gotten one or you're, uh, you don't have enough for your family or whatever it is, um, make sure you grab one. Um, but uh, so so those are sitting there with a little schedule on top. Um Other thing uh, that we want to do, we want to keep doing, uh, as we've been doing in the last few weeks, is just kind of talk with each other and and debrief over the week if um, any opportunities for spiritual conversations and pray over those and pray for more over the coming week. So any opportunities you guys had this week? All right, not this week. But uh, we know the Lord's sovereign, and we will pray for this week for open doors and for for boldness. So uh, let's go ahead and pray, and then um, I'll tell you what we're going to do today. So Father, we do thank you um, for uh, your goodness to us. We thank you for your grace and your kindness. We thank you for the salvation you have given us in Christ, uh, that you have united us with Christ, that uh, we are in him. You see us through the lens of Christ that we are not guilty, but we are counted as righteous, and you are making us righteous, O Lord God. We thank you for that. We long for the day when we will be completely righteous. Lord, we ask um, just for this week for, for boldness, for opportunities, uh, for open doors uh, to proclaim the truth to those around us. Thank you for the people that we've been able to talk with already. We pray for further opportunities for them and that you would be working on their their hearts. Um, Lord, we know that no one can be saved apart from your working, and so we pray for that this, this week. We ask these things in your name. Amen. All right, I am going to hand out, or start handing out, actually my lovely assistant will um, uh, start handing out uh, an uh, an overview, and this is going to be an overview of the book of Mark. And uh, the reason we're doing that this week is actually ties in with what we did with um, with the evangelism book, uh, you may have noticed in that book, um, he mentioned at one point. Uh, Styles mentioned uh, the idea of uh, an evangelistic tool being um, talking with an unbeliever and saying, "Hey, would you be willing to sit down with me and read uh, read the scriptures?" And particularly, you might start with a, a gospel. And uh, the Gospel of Mark is a good one to start with. So the reason we're doing this this week is to kind of give you another tool, another evangelism tool in your tool belt. Um, so th- that's the idea, is you're talking with someone, uh, maybe they're interested, maybe they're not, maybe you just flat out ask. But uh, it's a pretty, um, pretty innocuous question to just say, um, hey, you know, uh, I believe what the Scriptures say. The Scriptures are the things that t- is what tells us about who Jesus is. Uh, would you be willing to sit down with me, and over the number of few weeks, maybe we have coffee together, or lunch, or whatever it is, would you be able to, would you be willing to read through uh, the Gospel of Mark together? Now, you could do other Gospels. Why the Gospel of Mark? Um, A lot of people like the Gospel of John as well. So, the the reason Gospel of Mark uh, might be a good place to start is it's the shortest of the Gospels, so it's kind of a shorter commitment. Um, You've seen already, as we're going through Matthew, right, there's, there's, there's a lot of going back to the Old Testament, which is great. There's a lot of going back to the Old Testament in Mark as well, but um, it, it can get fairly complicated sometimes in the Gospel of Matthew. Right? Uh, Mark's maybe a little bit more straightforward. Uh, Luke, Luke's the longest uh, of the Gospels, right? So if you're you're going to jump in, you're gonna you're being for the long haul. It's great if they're willing to commit to that. That's that's excellent, right? Uh, and then John, uh, you know, everyone likes John because it's very simple language, easy to jump into. But John's one of those, um, I kind of call it deceptive in, in a sense, right, in this sense, that the language is simple and the concepts are the concepts are deep, very, very, very deep. So you can read it um, and it, you'll get a lot out of it at a surface reading, but if you, you actually want people to, okay, jump in and understand, uh, you're going to have to go fairly deep. Uh, and it's also fairly long. So just for all those reasons, you don't have to choose Mark, but Mark's a nice uh, nice place to start. It's pretty, um, it's short, it's concise, uh, it gets at the main point. Okay, so what I want to do for you then this morning is walk you through, okay, great, we're going to sit down and read the Gospel of Mark with an unbeliever. How in the world would you present the Gospel from that, right? It's going to be over the course of weeks. Uh, What would that look like? Well, to give you a framework and a thought of that, it would be helpful to just walk you through the structure and the shape of the Gospel. Because the Gospel itself, it's built in such a way... Uh, that it's, it's basically in two parts. And the two parts, if you understand what's going on in each of those two parts, uh, as you're reading through it, if you have that structure in your mind, you're going to be able to walk people through it and point them out, hey, this is what this is doing, this is what this is doing, uh, and really introduce them to Jesus in that way. So that's what we're kind of doing. We're kind of doing a Mark overview for the purpose of, if you had one of these times of reading through, you kind of have a map in your mind that you could walk them through it. Uh, does this make sense? Any questions on this? Okay, so um, let's just talk about a few basics. So the audience of Mark is probably a Roman audience, or at least a—why uh, um, would we say that? There's some Latin terminology, there's some terms in the gospel that they're, they're like transliterations of Latin terms, uh, and so that probably leads us to at least an Italy sort of audience or a Roman audience. Also, um, through church history, we know Mark was written connected with Peter's ministry— uh, in Acts, you see kind of Peter leave the scene, so to speak, in Acts 12, and you're like, hey, where did he go? Because you don't see him again. Uh, well, uh, church tradition places him as eventually ending up in Rome and having a ministry there, uh, probably even fairly early, could be as early as the 50s. Um, he's having a ministry there in Rome. Uh, but then Mark gets connected with him. You see that in First and 2 Peter, That uh, the end of 1 Peter, that Mark's along with him. Dating of Mark. Now, this depends on your view of a lot of things. I date Mark later, um, so I think Matthew's the first gospel written. I think Luke's the second gospel, and I think Mark is the third. Um, but uh, different people have different opinions on that. It doesn't matter too much for the purposes of what you're going to be doing, dealing with, with talking with other people. Um, we would say this: that it's Mark. Uh, Mark is inspired. Um, he is. He, he's given the gift of pro- prophecy in the sense that he's able to write scripture, but he's doing it under the Apostle Peter's oversight, uh, is the idea. Uh, the style of Mark is very action-oriented, right? You get a lot of these immediately, immediately, immediately. Like So he's just boom, 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 right? Which is also kind of fits nicely with if you're going to walk someone in our culture through one of these. It kinda, it's kind of nice that it's action-oriented, right? It keeps the action moving. You're seeing what's happening uh, there. Uh, now, here's the, where we start to kind of get into some of the, the message of the book. So, uh, if you have your Bibles, you can um, open them to Mark one one. Hopefully, if you got the chance to read over it this week, that's great. If you didn't, that's totally fine. Uh, it's great to read a gospel through it, a big, uh, fast clip, if you get that opportunity. Um, but uh, here's one of the key things. 1 verse 1 actually sets the pace for the, the rest of the, the book. So, it says this, the beginning of the gospel, okay, so there's our key word, the, the, the proclamation of good news of Jesus Christ, so we're proclaiming a person, we're proclaiming Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, here's the key terms that you need to notice, and they actually show up in strategic ways in the rest of the book. Christ and Son of God, Christ and Son of God. And really, I would argue that that's the purpose of Mark. Mar- the purpose of Mark to a Roman audience is to show that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and therefore should be followed. That's the basic idea, that even from the outset, the, the, what Mark is going to craft his gospel under the oversight of Peter to do is that, to show that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and therefore should be followed. Um, so it's similar to what we see in Matthew, although the accent is, a, is slightly different. Uh, He uses the structure of his gospel to develop what it means for Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God. Okay, so uh, we'll talk about those terms Christ and Son of God here in a second uh, to understand that. But what you need to know, especially if you're going to walk through the gospel of Mark with someone, uh, is that Mark breaks down into two pieces. It breaks down into two pieces. Built around uh, when when Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. So that's a key moment in all of the Gospels. We see that moment when Je- uh, Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. But in Mark in particular, it's a turning point. It's a turning point. Uh, it, it, he's confessing, Peter is confessing one of these titles that the book of Mark starts with. The Christ, the Son of God, right? Now Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. He doesn't use the Son of God language. Uh, but he does confess him as the Christ. And Mark, that's kind of the literary uh, turning point in the whole Gospel. And what you will see um, in the first part, if you read through Mark this week, one of the things you might have noticed is in the first half, there's like miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. Like there's just a ton of miracles placed in that first half of the gospel. And that kind of leads us up to Peter's confession. And so we might characterize the first portion this way. Jesus shows he is the son of God by his authority. His authority manifested in uh, over sickness, uh, over demons, over um, uh, over weather, uh, right? All of that's manifesting his authority as the Christ leading up to Peter's confession. And then the second part, um, the second part, uh, there, there's, there's still, even though Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, does Peter get it? No. <laughs> uh, no, because uh, he gets rebuked pretty soon thereafter, right? So Peter didn't get it. But that's actually strategic, literally, too, right? Because what is Mark teaching us about? Well, he's teaching us about what does it mean to confess Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so, then the second half of the gospel, we kind of dump the miracles side. Uh, there's less miracles in the second half. Uh, but what there is, is there's a lot of language about serving and suffering, particularly linking back to the. Now, I said it, it does link back to the Old Testament, but particularly, uh, Mark links back to the idea of the Isaiah suffering servant. Okay, Uh, but you see that language a lot through the second portion, and that's showing us the other half of what it means to be the Christ, the Son of God. So uh, Jesus shows He's the Son of God by His authority. That's basically the first half of the gospel, and then the second part is Jesus shows He's the Son of God by serving through suffering. Right. So if you're teaching a Roman audience, right, so people in Rome, it's really foolish for the Romans to like you're you're worshiping a crucified God. That doesn't make any sense, right? So it's not only showing Jesus, no, this guy has the authority, but it's also, but what does it mean? Uh, even though it looks foolish, the suffering looks foolish, that's actually, uh, that's part of what it means to be the Christ, the Son of God. So that's a very broad brushstroke, but it helps give you an overall map of, of the gospel. Okay, and we'll, we'll hit some more highlights into, uh, in a few of these other items as we walk through. Um, any questions up to this point? Right, right. Yeah, it's a, it's a very, the gospel is very foolish, right? And so you're thinking about proclaiming the gospel to the Romans, right? And, you know, and that helps us map it onto our day too, right? Like, we see the significance. gospel is very foolish. It's stupid to talk about this stuff to our world. And that's intentional. We know in God's providence, he uses the foolish things of the world to show and amplify his, his power. It's only by him that anyone's saved, right? But that's kind of even part of how Mark is structured. It's, it's saying, okay here's the guy with all the authority, but here he is, he's a servant too, which goes, it's countercultural to, to the the, the Roman mindset, okay? Uh, any other questions or comments before we delve into more of this? Okay, so um, let's, I want to talk to you about a couple more of these pieces, because if you're sitting down with someone reading it through, you want to be attuned uh, to a couple key factors that you would want to point out. Uh Think of if you were sitting down with someone uh, reading through the gospel, you're playing tour guide, right? That's really what you're doing. You're playing tour guide. You're not going to get all the details in a read through with them, but you want to point out the key the key ideas, right? So, like we said in one one, uh, he uses this title, right? Uh, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Christ is means anointed one. Uh, it's that that kind of new the Greek version of the. Uh, the Old Testament version of Mashiach, the anointed one, right? And the anointed one uh, in the Old Testament could either refer to the priest, um, but especially it referred to the king, and more especially to the Davidic king. So as soon as you get the word Christ, you're talking about uh, the Davidic covenant and the promises to David. So it's a it's a human term, but specific to that covenant of David. Uh, now what's interesting is, is that the way Mark puts these together, he says, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He juxtaposes them. He sets them right side by side. Usually when you juxtapose two terms, so a little grammar here, right? When you juxtapose two terms like that, usually the second is further explaining the first or renaming. It's called apposition. Um, So there's some sort of overlap between these two terms. And uh, if you were to look through the scriptures, we've already seen this in Matthew, similar idea, right? That the idea of son of God is really a human idea. It is a human idea. Uh, Now, we know uh, Jesus is the ultimate son of God because he is God the son, okay? But in terms of terminology and what uh, Mark is talking about and what the Old Testament is talking about, son of God was a title, starting with Adam as God's appointed steward king over the world, right? Uh, talks about in Genesis 5 how uh, God made uh, Adam in his likeness, and then Adam had a son in his likeness. So the idea of likeness is the idea of sonship, um, but it's particularly a human term referred to, here's God's chosen one, his chosen ruler for, for the world, right? So it's a significant term. It's an honorable term, right? But it's this, this idea of the ruler of the world. Israel's called God's son. Why? Because they're that kingdom of priests. They're that mediating ruler uh, between the rest of the world and God. And then ultimately, of course, we get the Davidic covenant where um, the Davidic king, 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 2, um, uh, the, this language of sonship, where the Davidic king is the one who's ultimately going to be the son of God who's going to rule over the whole world. So the anointed one. The Christ, the Davidic king, is going to be that ultimate son of God who's going to rule over, over the world, okay? What's interesting, especially for Mark, uh, with its Roman audience, is that Caesar Augustus uh, was this, this, this time when Augustus, the Caesar, he reigned, and it was a time of peace and tranquility in the Roman Empire of expansion. Um, and what's interesting is uh, that Caesar Augustus and his decrees uh, to the provinces, he called himself the son of God, right? Uh, the idea of he was the adopted son of Julius Caesar, uh, who who was recognized as a god, right? So it's it's significant, right, that Mark is using that term even in in how he's proclaiming this. He's he's essentially presenting a rival Caesar, right? He's saying, okay, you thought you thought Caesar Augustus was great, let me show you who Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who rules over the whole world, um, and he's really he's he's putting putting those two ideas together, and he's saying. Uh, here. Here's the true king. Because if you're going to convert, uh, if you're a Roman and you're going to convert to Christianity, you're essentially swearing allegiance, right, to, to another king, right, which we can even see in Acts how that caused a, uh, a number of issues even in different Roman cities in the empire. Um, okay, I want to, a couple more points and then I'll pause for you guys to ask some questions. Uh, from Mark 1.1 until Peter's confession in 8.29, the title Christ is not used. Okay, so that highlights some of that strategic language of that, that Mark is highlighting that Peter's confession is this focal point. Okay, so go ahead and turn to Mark 8. Um, let's just go ahead and read Peter's confession real quick. Um, okay, someone read uh, 8.27 through 30. 827 through 30. So um, that's, that's the midpoint, right, where um, essentially, um, and we'll see this a little bit more as we go, that uh, in that first part, it's all culminating in that first confession. Now, what's also very interesting, remember, Jesus is the gospel of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. So where do we see Son of God next? You do see it from the mouths of demons, but you don't see it com- confessed by a human apart from Jesus until the very end of the gospel. Okay, so you do hear it from the mouths of demons, you hear it from Jesus to an extent, but you don't hear another human confess that about Jesus until the end in uh, 1539. So go ahead and turn to the end. And uh, someone read 1537-39. Okay, now, there's our turn, right? We've got a human confessing the other part, right? So Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. Who's confessing Jesus to be the Son of God? A centurion, a Roman dude, right, is confessing him to be the Son of God. That's significant, literarily, right? So we put that together, but what's interesting, Peter sees it. The first half, we see a bunch of Jesus' miracles, and uh, Peter gets that part of it. You're the Christ, you're the Davidic king. You're the one who's going to rule over everything. But then the second half of the gospel, how does the centurion recognize that this one is the son of God? By his suffering, right? By the suffering on the cross. So we see that second kind of portion. It's not only the authority, it's the suffering, and it's the suffering through which the Roman centurion sees that Jesus is the son of God, right? So that's just to show you the overall framework again of how uh, key those terms are, and though you would want to point those out. Like if you're wa- reading through this with someone, walking them through, say, okay, here's some significant terms. Be on the lookout as we walk through this gospel. Okay, any questions or comments as uh, um, up to this point? Christ, the term Christ the Messiah. Y- yes. Yep. What would? Be, yeah. Uh, it's. It, Mashi- yeah. So, Mashiach is is just the Hebrew terminology for anointed one. And um, you, Creo uh, is like the verb to anoint in in Greek. And so that's where you get your word Christos, um, which is uh, the anointed one. Um, so it's, it's interchangeable. Both mean the anointed one, and that's Old Testament terminology. Right? So, yeah. Good. Uh, anything else? All right. So uh, let's talk a little bit more about that first portion. So Jesus shows he's the Son of God by his authority. So first half of the gospel. Um, like I said, you get sixteen of the nineteen miracles recorded in Mark in this first section. And as you're reading, you just kind of bam, bam, bam. It's like you're just getting pummeled with the reality that um, that who this is, especially. Uh, for a Roman mind to see Jesus' authority over demons and over spirits, Romans did believe in that, um, but to see his authority over that would have been very, very, very significant. Um, and uh, like I said, with Peter's confession in 829, you've kind of got this essential argument that why are we getting all these miracles? Well, it's it's leading up to, it's proving to um, Peter and to the rest of the disciples that, yeah, Jesus is the Christ. He is doing uh, what the Old Testament scriptures uh, promised. He has unparalleled authority, okay? What's very interesting, though, is as you, if you're reading through Mark, you're going to get these times where he heals someone, and then what does he typically say? He heals someone, and then what does he typically tell the person he healed? Don't tell anyone. <laughs> don't tell anyone. And in fact, uh, even after Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, he says, don't say anything. And we're like, what? Why, why would you do that, right? why and this is uh people call this the messianic secret um the idea and it's just kind of confusing like why would jesus hide that um now let's let's just ask you for a second why would you think that jesus uh even let's say after peter confesses he's the christ and 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 jesus affirms that it's like yeah you've said right but um, why would he not want his disciples to tell anyone who he was Sure. There's that that there's that aspect of it. What else? Think of the disciples. What are if they start proclaiming Jesus as the Christ, what's the what's the potential difficulty there? Timing is one, but there's something else. Still what that means. Exactly. Exactly. So, does Peter we said earlier, right? Does Peter really get it? No, not really, right? He's got the kingship portion, right? Uh, and that's where the disciples are looking for. They're looking for the king, and there is, he is a king, and he is going to do the things that the Messiah is supposed to do. He will rule over a kingdom in Jerusalem, but what they missed was the suffering aspect. Uh, and you, what's kind of interesting about this is, literally, um, right next to Peter's confession in 8.22 through 26, you get a two-stage healing of a blind man. Uh, and that seems intentional to kind of say, so you look at 822 through 26, Jesus heals the guy, and he's like, do you see anything? And he's like, well, I'll see people, but they look like trees walking, and then he has to lay his hands on them again. So you get kind of this two-stage healing. I think that's intentional to say that's that's what's going on with the disciples, right? They kind of get it, but they need some more work um, before they finally get it, uh, which is the second part of the gospel, right? So as you were walking someone through this right people get excited about the miracles and about who Jesus is like great you do need to see Jesus authority and that's what they should come away with for the first half of mark but it's like but it's not just that it's not just that there's more to the picture yeah susan yes yeah it's in john i think Yeah, exactly. And and it's not so it's Jesus isn't denying being the Messiah, but he wants them to have the right conception of who the Messiah is. The Old Testament gave the right conception. If you put the pieces together in the Old Testament, the Messiah is a king. He is going to rule over Israel and over all the world. God's going to work through him. But then Isaiah is critical where Isaiah really gives us the idea, yeah, but the Messiah is also going to be the one Who's the mediator of the new covenant, and how is he going to how is he going to purchase uh, the new covenant? He's going to purchase it through suffering, which is where you get the second half of Mark and a lot of allusions and um, callbacks to that idea into Isaiah specifically with the suffering servant. Okay, any other questions, comments up to this point? This making sense? uh Oh, I've lost you. Okay, any questions? I want to make sure we're okay. I know it's a flyby, but it's, it's it's just that idea of giving you a map so that you have something that you could you have the basic ideas to walk someone through the scriptures, reading it together. Any questions? Okay. Second half. So Jesus shows he's the Son of God um, uh, by serving through suffering. Um, so uh, and what's interesting in eight thirty one, right? That uh, Jesus. So go back to. Go back to 8. So immediately, immediately after uh, Peter's confession, 8.31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after uh, three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, right? And we, we kind of think that's funny, and yet at the same time, it's like this illustrates Peter doesn't get it, right? Right? Um, and the disciples don't get it. Uh, why? Because uh, it's this very thing, this idea of a suffering Messiah uh, that that um, Jesus needs to teach them about. You see a lot of emphasis in these chapters on service uh, and suffering, especially in 10, uh, 1040, uh, yeah, 1045. And... Um, This is when James and John, uh, they come up, uh, or their mother brings them up and says, hey, can they sit in right and left in your kingdom, right? They're still thinking of the greatness. Um, And Jesus says, uh, "He says, let's say, start in verse 42, 1042. Jesus called them to him, the disciples, and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant or slave. Uh, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Uh, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That idea of a ransom, of substitution and being a servant, that leads us back to Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant. And he's trying to teach his disciples this is what it means. And he keeps telling them and he keeps telling them, ultimately leading up to... Um, uh, leading up to the crucifixion. Speaking of which, turn to fourteen. So we get to the crucifixion. They get to the trials and all of that. Uh, fourteen sixty one. So he's on trial, and what seals his fate? So someone, go ahead and read fourteen sixty one through um, through sixty four. 1461 through 64. Someone go ahead and read that. Notice the high priest's question. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Going back to Mark 1, one, right? But notice the high priest isn't confessing that, but Jesus confesses it, right? I am. I am the Christ and the Son of the Blessed. Not only does he confess that, he says, I am the Son of Man, which that's Daniel 7. And it's Daniel 7 saying, uh, the, the Son of Man is a divine figure in Daniel. He's not just a human, he is but he is presented as a divine human figure in Daniel 7. And so that's why the high priest says, that's blasphemy, right? You've just claimed not only to be the Christ, but also divine at the same time, right? Which seals his fate. Um, But again, son of God and Christ means you're going to suffer. Confessing that seals his fate um, for suffering. Um, You've even got the crucifixion, right? Uh, There's in... Uh, Let's see, it's 15. Uh, There's a fulfillment statement. I should have written it down. Uh, Where is it? Well, I can't find it right at the moment, but there's a fulfillment statement where he's crucified with the two robbers, and it says, so that it might be fulfilled, he was numbered with the transgressors. And that language goes exactly back to Isaiah 53, right? That he. What's that? Verse 28. Thank you. 27 and 28. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple. Uh, Where is it, though? It's weird. In any case, you see that that fulfillment language and picture going back to Isaiah 53, right? Um, so it's, it's that Mark is purposely, he's been purposely pointing us that direction. To be the Christ, to be the Son of God means you're going to suffer on behalf of people. Um, yeah, there's a textual criticism issue there, so I'd have to look into. Yeah, it's got the brackets, so I have to look into that one a little bit more but I thought there was another place where it said it. So, anyway. Um, So then we see, right, in the crucifixion, we already saw how the centurion confesses Jesus to be the Son of God. That's the only other human who, uh, you know, we've got Peter, you're the Christ. We've got the centurion, the Roman centurion, saying you're the Son of God. How does he recognize that? He recognizes it to... um, um, He recognizes it in the midst of Jesus' suffering, right? So he's pulling those ideas together, okay? Uh, That's the basic flow of uh, the gospel. Um, Now, one interesting thing, uh, and you guys are probably aware of this, probably uh, the gospel mark ends at 16.8. So you got 16.9 through 20, It's not in the original, the most, the best and earliest original, the best and earliest manuscripts that we have available to us. So it's interesting because then uh, the gospel ends like this. So there, there's, um, well, I'll start in verse five. Uh, And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, "Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here." See the place where they laid him, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. Therefore, there you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. End of the gospel. And you're like, well, that's really weird, right? If that's how the gospel ends, but why is that actually really brilliant? Well, because Scripture, the Holy Spirit wrote it, of course, but why does that make sense literarily to end that way? Think of the audience and think of who Mark is speaking to. So he's talking to a Roman audience, right? Obviously people have come to them proclaiming this gospel, right? But what's kind of the the implicit uh, call to the readers? What are you going to do about it? Yeah. Well, but even the idea that what are the Romans, the Romans would be afraid, right? They would be afraid, even if they converted to Christ, to not tell anyone because it's foolish, right? So there's kind of this hanging thing at the end of the gospel. It's like, well, wait a minute, did the women tell about this or not? And we know that they did, right? Because the gospel is written and the. Uh, there's been all this ministry, a ministry that eventually worked its way to Rome, to where the Romans are now hearing this, right? So we know they spoke, but it's kind of a question put to the audience, right? What are you going to do? You've heard about Jesus as the suffering Messiah. You've heard about him rising from the dead through witnesses, just like the angel here, right? What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? I think that's how, the best way to make sense of why the gospel ends so abruptly. I think it's intentional and I think it's asking that question. Okay, Romans, you've heard Jesus is the Christ. He's the suffering Messiah. He's resurrected. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to be afraid? And Mark is, he's abrupt in all of everything. Yeah. Like, that's just how the book is. He starts with, like, boom. He just, like, enters right in. You don't even know about Jesus first or anything right. like that. Right, yeah. Like, there's no commentary, just action. Right, right, exactly. So the ending piece to this, right, so... You, you know, you kind of use that literary map, walking someone, reading through over the course of weeks. I'm not saying you're doing this in one day, right? But you do this over the course of weeks, a number of meetings with someone. You kind of point out and highlight the structure and the, the piece to all of this. Uh, but then really what Mark is calling, uh, what it means to be a disciple, uh, what does it mean to follow, right? That's showing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so that they, uh, so that people follow. That's That's the purpose of Mark, we said. Um, as you go through that, you would want to point out things like, well, the call to follow Jesus. What does it mean to follow Him? What does it mean? And walking through the Gospel of Mark, you could see that um, it's 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 not just coming to Jesus for the benefits. Um, many crowds came to Jesus for His miracles, but they weren't true disciples. We see that in Matthew too, um, as well. But that would be something you would want to point out. It means what it means to believe in Jesus and to come to Jesus is not just mental assent. It's not just coming to Jesus for the benefits. Um, It's neither, Neither is following Jesus just about looking forward to his authority and kingdom, as Jesus' rebuke of Peter shows. There's a way in which you could look forward to Jesus' kingdom and his authority in a wrong way. Now, that's true. Jesus does have a kingdom. He does have authority. He will rule over the world in a physical and spiritual kingdom. And yet, if you focus on those, there's a way you can focus on them in a wrong way, like Peter was, uh, that's not following, right? You follow not only the, the benefits uh, and the authority, but you follow the suffering as well. Rather, a true fo- and full following of Jesus will embrace not only his authority and blessings, but more fundamentally will trust him as the suffering servant for the full atonement of sins, which is that second part of the gospel and how that links back to that language of Isaiah 53, right? So somewhere reading along in the gospel as you get into that second part, You're going to want to bring uh, the person you're reading with back to Isaiah 53 and say, this is what Mark and Jesus are linking to. This is what it means to be the Messiah. This is what it means to suffer uh, in atonement for his people. Um, And it's kind of this idea with the centurion. No one's fit to proclaim Jesus as Christ, the Son of God, unless they see him as the suffering servant and also partake in his suffering in this time before uh, Jesus' kingdom comes. So that's kind of the basic idea of of the Gospel of Mark. I do include in that um, sheet I handed out to you just a some some comments. Uh, if you're going to read through Mark with someone, you're going to uh, you're going to have to address the issue of like, hey, why does the Gospel stop at eight, even when you've got some more text here, right? Which actually, if you're talking to someone about the Gospel and they're not familiar with the Bible, it actually lends greater credence to our faith, right? That uh, God has preserved in His uh, the Scriptures a number of manuscripts to where we can compare and contrast, and we can say, "Yeah, this is original; this isn't." Um, and that's just testimony that God has preserved His work. But there's a few comments there that uh, kind of illustrate why we we stopped the book of Mark at verse eight. So, all right, five minutes to swear. So that was a flyby. What was the whole point of it? To give you a map. So that when you're walking through reading the gospel with someone, you want them to hear the scriptures. You want the scriptures speaking to them, uh, but you want to be play tour guide, right? And you want to be able to say, hey, look at this. This is what's important. Hey, look at this. This is what's important. But the gospel of Mark is presenting who Jesus is, his authority and his suffering, um, so that you might follow him as, as Christ. Okay, questions, comments? Thoughts on how you might use this, or what it would look like to use this, um, with with an unbeliever, reading it with them. Yeah, Patricia. Yeah, because the scriptures have an intent, right? There is a, the, Mark has an intent, right? God is using through the Holy Spirit, right? His, his, the Holy Spirit's intent and the human author's intent are one in the writing of that. So you want to, it's a good point what you're saying, right? You want to keep the conversation as best you can on track. You want it mirroring that intent throughout. So yeah, there are weird, people are going to ask weird questions about like this and that, and it's not wrong to answer those questions, Right. But you want to kind of keep bringing back. Well, what is Mark showing us here? What is Mark showing us here? He's presenting Jesus to us in this particular way. Um, so that's why I think it's always helpful to have the big picture, so you don't get lost in in the weeds. So yeah. Any other questions, comments? Yeah. You could do it either way. I've heard people do it either way, right? So um, you could, there, I think there's value in just doing it together, right? Um, it just depends on where the person is at. Like, you just send someone home with Mark, right, and to read it, and it's like, yeah, they're going to get something out of it, but, you know, it would be better if you just sat together, read it out loud, have them read it out loud if they're, they're willing to do that, right, because, uh, and then, and discuss it right, and talk about it, Um, and it just depends on where the person's at, so, but you got to break it up, right, and if they're, you can do it in such a way, you you know, you could talk to someone and say, well, would you be willing to meet with me for six weeks, or eight, or whatever it is, right, and work through the, and listen to the gospel of Mark, Uh, and that's nice, because then you have a definite end time, right, for them. You could do it open-ended, right, and just see how far you get, But what's nice about, like, say, doing six weeks or something like that, you're getting through it in a manageable time, and you're taking larger chunks, which I say it it keeps you on track, kind of back to what Patricia was saying, right? You're trying to get the big picture. Uh, There's lots of details that you could spend a lot of time on, but you're trying to get them to see who Jesus is and what it means for him to be the Messiah, right? Um, So, yeah. Yeah. Good question. Did that answer all your question? Okay, got it. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. So that same idea is, is, uh, the scriptures are powerful, right? God builds his church through his word. Um, you're depending on the spirit to work through the word, but you're just playing tour guide. You get to be the Philip, right? To kind of be, help them understand the scriptures. So, yeah. Anything else? That's the value of doing something, uh, the, the term is an Old Testament or New Testament survey, where you're just kind of getting the broad picture of each book, so you kind of know each book's message and how it works. Um, like Ezekiel, what's the, you know, what's the purpose of Ezekiel? It's talking about God's presence. Um, you know, presence leaves at the beginning, comes back at the end, right? And it's tying that with Israel and what's going on with Israel, right? But just having a broad outline of each book of the Bible and how it works, its logic, really helpful. Um, for then going into it. Like, so you don't just dive in to Leviticus uh, without understanding, okay, what's going on in Leviticus? What's its logic? Uh, because then you're going to understand each individual passage in light of the whole. So that's something we might be able to do um, over the course of time, uh, even in equipping hour. We'll, we'll see. So, All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are, um, you have all authority in heaven and on earth. You have authority over uh, creation, over uh, nature, over weather. Um, you have authority over demonic forces. You have authority over sickness. And yet, Lord, what's most amazing about the gospel is that you you came and gave yourself as a suffering servant, a suffering king, a king of all, but then suffering for your people, suffering for those who would entrust themselves to you, giving yourself as a ransom. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you are our ransom in our place. We thank you that you are risen again, that you, sh- you proved who you were, and you gave us the hope of eternal life. Lord, we long for that. Help us to praise you in response to the gospel, even the little bit that we've seen of Mark this morning. Um, as we gather, as we sing, as we Speak to one another, and may you be honored and glorified. We ask these things in your name. Amen.